0: Yeah, who do you like more? <laughs> it's a competition. Start by sugar and flour for it. So now that everybody is distracted with cookies, and you're all going to be jittery if you eat them while we're studying, so maybe you can save them, just eat them during the service and it'll keep you going. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, happy Valentine's Day from our family. Um, right, we are going to pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 17. I gave you the entire text of the first 15 verses of chapter 17. We had studied all the way through verse 9 last week, but I'll just kind of back up a little bit and get us running forward. Um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had left Philippi, they left Luke behind, and had gone to Thessalonica where they began uh, teaching in the synagogues there for about a month or so. We're not quite exactly sure. It does say in the text that um, they were there for three Sabbaths at least. That just doesn't mean he was only there three Saturdays. He could have been there multiple Saturdays. He may not have gone to the synagogue on one of them for all we know. We do know in later, um, uh, in the book of Philippians, where the people of Philippi sent money to Paul in Thessalonica so he must have been there long enough to where he felt he would rec- receive a report or an offering or something. There's also a theory that he set up his tent making business there as well so he would not be a burden on the people of the town. Well obviously the, uh, the town responded as they typically did. You had some who believed or were persuaded, as it says in, uh, let's see, verse, where is it? I know it's in here. I'm, verse, four. verse 4, that's right. And some were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as a great many of the Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But there were Jews that were not happy with this. So they, <laughs> I just love the way... Luke wrote this, that some wicked men of the rabble formed a a mob, um, and they pretty much attacked the Christians in the town. Specifically, some guy named Jason, who we do not know who he was, but they pulled him, drug him out of the house and took him to the leaders of the city and forced him to put up a bond as you pay us the money, you'll get the money back if Paul leaves town. And so they ship them out. We, see, we start up in verse 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then they arrived. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, a couple things to note in that little verse. Immediately they sent Paul and Silas. Timothy is not mentioned, so it's possible Timothy stayed behind. We don't know. We do know Timothy was with Paul and Silas later. uh, But actually in Thessalonica, which we see down in verse 14. Um, But he's not mentioned here. And they sent them at night. Now Berea, I gave you a little map on the second page of your handout. Um because that's related to our study of First Thessalonians, which we will pick up in a minute. But you can see, you see Philippi up on the top, you see Thessalonica just a little to the west, and then Berea further south. We had talked about the Ignatian Way, the big Roman road that was 700 miles long from the west coast of Greece all the way to Byzantium or Constantinople or Istanbul as we call it today. If you go across, let's see, looking at the map this way from the west, you come to Thessalonica and then up to Philippi. Berea is not on that road. The next natural uh, place to go if you're headed west is Pella. And Pella is not, you, you can only find it if you have a very detailed map in front of you. Um, because it's never mentioned in the New Testament, never anywhere, it's just geographically it's the next town over. So either the people in Thessalonica knew some friends or family in Berea. Pella's a lot closer. Pella's maybe 25 miles away. Berea is 50 miles away. 50 miles away from Phoenix puts you where? Halfway to Tucson Halfway to Prescott, the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you, know, you're, you know, if you don't have gas and you run out of gas right there, you gotta use the thumb because there is no place in either direction. Buckeye. Yeah, or go that other direction, you're in Buckeye, maybe. Um, Berea is not a quick walk. You don't do 50 miles in one day. And it says they left at night. So they went out in the dead of night. There's nothing between Thessalonica and Berea that we know of. No town, there may have been a few. Oh, probably a flying J or something, or a pilot or something where you could stop by, some truck stop. But there's typically not ever mentioned in any archeological studies, anything of a town. You just have to keep going. So they probably walked all night and all day and all the next day two day trip to get to Berea that's a long walk but they get there <clears throat> and what's the first thing Paul does Preach. goes to the Jewish synagogue what an idiot every time he goes to a Jewish synagogue people get mad at him but what does he do he walks right into town and says where is it let's go and he begins to preach again. This is the mark of someone with a lot of courage, with a strength of conviction. He's been kicked out of two European towns already, Philippi and Thessalonica. He's not welcome, and yet he heads right into the Jewish synagogue. But we have a very different situation as we see in verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. <clears throat> now, I always, I, I always look for the humor in some of these passages. But think about it. Luke is the writer of this. Luke wasn't there. So he's being told this story, probably by Paul and Silas, and maybe even Timothy in their recollections. And they're sitting there going... Oh yeah, these guys were nice. Whoa! Those Jews in Thessalonic, they were tough. And there's this contrast between the attitude of those Jews in Berea. Now many pastors will challenge their church and say, we need to be people of Berea. We need to be Bereans. Well, why? Well. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because there is no because in the text, but they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily (coughs) to see if these things were so. The word noble is used only three times in the New Testament. Only three times. It's used in Luke 19 about the noblemen, Luke 19, 12. And in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, it talks about people of noble birth. So the other two instances of the word noble is related to uh, wealth or to their status or their standing. That's not what's being talked about here. That's one of my first <laughs> This is more the attitude, the... Uh, what would be my word here? Um, the sensibility of them, that they were uh, willing, they were uh, free, they were open. The word noble in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, is only used once. In the entire Old Testament. Which I thought, really? So I had to look it up. And I went and found it. Um, It's in Job chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. He, Job, possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And the word greatest there in the Greek is the word noble. Same word. And a rare word to be Used in even in the Greek culture, you didn't talk about nobility necessarily, but here Paul describes these Jews as being noble. What a contrast! They received the word. Is there another handout, by the way? Somebody, and so these guys can have one. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> We're in verse. Uh, 11, they received the word to accept something deliberately when you receive it. And the word is literally ton logos, the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was God, the logos. That's what they mean here. This is the logos with all eagerness. Socrates used the word eagerness in the Greek to describe religious fervor emotionally. They're sold out on studying the Word. And then it says, examining the Scriptures daily. All right, so we have to pull that apart a little bit and look at the underlying text so you get a sense of what he's saying. It is the the word examining is the word anacrino. And ana means again And crino means to sift, or to judge. The tense of this is an, is a present tense, which means it's continual. This is not a one-time thing. This was an ongoing process. They didn't just start examining the Scriptures when Paul showed up. They had already been examining the scriptures daily and they continued when Paul showed up and they sifted what was being said I, I didn't write it down but it was, I think it's like 28 times in the testament the word anacrino is used and the one that jumped out at me was Pilate examined Jesus and found him not guilty it's the same word that's in, um, where is that? Luke twenty three fourteen. Pilate examined Christ. He sifted him again and again through questioning and examined the Scriptures. Right? We've talked about this before, so you already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it again. When Paul is talking, or the New Testament is talking about the Scriptures, what are they talking about? the Old Testament this is not Paul talking about his own letter you know think yeah (laughs) I wrote the word of God you know I'm cool you know I'm a best-selling author Uh, no he's talking about the Old Testament this is why it is so astounding we've again I brought it up before when the megachurch pastor in Atlanta, Andy Stanley, just a few months ago, very publicly said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Quote, hmm. Now, I thought he had to have been misquoted. There's just no way an evangelical, conservative leader, pastor, well-respected, son of Charles Stanley, would say something like that. So I did my due diligence, I examined, <laughs> I did my anacrino, and I went and watched him say it. It's on video, and it's bold, it's blatant. It's in the context of him talking about evangelism, saying we have this challenge of going and talking to our existing culture, who is no biblical literacy and they don't understand the Old Testament. They get all tied up in some of the difficulties of it. Um, you know, if, you get, if you start talking to a skeptic, they'll start picking up stuff all through the Old Testament and saying, well, why did you know, God um, commit genocide? You know, why did he send the Israelites in to kill all these Canaanites? Why, well, this isn't right. And things like that are just, it's difficult in our Western mentality. And so, Andy Stanley is saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from that and focus on the new covenant, which is Jesus and the Gospels and the Epistles. Okay. I would tend to disagree with that. Actually, I'm not going to tend to disagree with it. I disagree with it. Without the Old Testament, we cannot fully understand the new. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. We've talked about this last week in examining how Paul opened up the Scriptures to the Thessalonians by using Old Testament Scriptures to show that Jesus was who He was and that He was the Christ. And my challenge to everyone here was, could you do that? Could you actually just use the Old Testament and witness to somebody? You can. It's very possible. But here you have these Bereans examining the scriptures daily, not just on Sunday morning, or in their case, Saturday. Every day. And what the other little, little tidbit here is to see if these things were so. The man standing in front of him, in front of this group in Berea, was Paul, the apostle. It wasn't Steve Lobby at Camelback Bible Church. This is, I mean, if Paul walked through the room right now, we'd all go, you know, our pens would be ready. We'd be, what is he going to say? These guys are like, who are you? They don't know who he was. He just walked into town in the middle of the night from Thessalonica and showed up in the synagogue and began spouting stuff. And they examined the scriptures. They didn't just take their favorite teacher and go, yes, everything he says is brilliant. Thank you for your thoughts on that for me. Um, <laughs> and I say this, every I, I like to remind myself, standing in front, of you, uh, in front of you is a privilege, but I'm not always right. And if I say something in this class at any time that I have misquoted a a scripture or I've misstated something, please say, did you mean this instead of that? Please, don't let my words come out in error when there is a counter to it. Please don't do that. Because sometimes, as teachers are wont to do, Uh, If you'll notice, I haven't been looking at my notes for the last four or five minutes. So I'm just, you know, just talking. And I'm going off of memory. And the older I get, my memory is no longer a steel trap. It's a plastic sieve. (laughs) And so I don't always remember what I've studied or what I've read. I have notes, I look at them, I rely on them. But this is what we need to do. With every teacher, you might have your favorite uh, radio teacher, TV preacher, author that you read. Yes, read them, listen to them. It's a great way of getting into the text. But there are times I'll hear some, you know, say even a John MacArthur, and I'll go, "What? That? No, that is not correct." You, I happen to know that what you just said is not historically accurate. And it doesn't mean you devalue everything else he said. It's just in one point, his research didn't go quite far enough. And then he said it because he was more important something else he was focusing on. But we need to do that. This is what and when Pastor Jim preaches. Take the notes. Listen to it. Discuss it among your friends. Discuss it with him. This is what we do. We are Camelback Bible Church. The Bible is in the center of our name, and it is the center of everything we do. We're not called Mosaic. We're not called some contemporary name of a church. We are Camelback Bible Church. And the Bible is central in what we do. Charles Spurgeon has it this way. The Greek word here, anakrino, signifies a strict, close, diligent, curious search, such as men make when they're seeking gold, or hunters when they're earnest after game. We must not rest content with having having given a superficial reading to a chapter or two But with the candle of the Spirit, we must deliberately seek out the meaning of the Word. Holy Scripture requires searching or examining. Much of it can only be learned by careful study. There is milk for babes, but there is also meat for the strong. The rabbis wisely said that a mountain of matter hangs on every word, yea, upon every tittle of Scripture meaning even the accents. Tertullian, the great church leader in the second, 3rd century, (coughs) I adore the fullness of Scripture. Spurgeon goes on and says, No man who merely skims the Word of God can profit. We must dig and mine until we obtain the hidden treasure. The door of the Word only opens to a key of diligence. The Scriptures claim searching, They're the writings of God bearing the divine stamp and imprimatur. Who dares treat them with levity? He who despises the words despises the God who wrote them. He goes on for another full paragraph. I have to stop there, and he is so right. I mean, we say that Jesus is offensive... To those who are unbelievers and who don't understand, and that's correct, they also get pretty offensive if you quote the scriptures at them. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Really? Well, now we have a fundamental problem because that's the foundation of everything I'm saying. And until we get that settled, we can't even really have a conversation. The scriptures are central. They are foundational. It's interesting, I found this little quote. Billy Graham was once asked, if you had to live your life over again, what would you do differently? What an odd question to ask Billy Graham, but they did. He answered, One of my greatest regrets is that I have not studied enough. Really? I wish I had studied more and preached less. People pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing to speak to them. That's interesting. We hold him up as this incredible evangelist, and he was. But even he said, I could have learned more. This is a man who immersed himself in Scripture since he was a boy, every day. George Mueller, the great man of prayer from Bristol, England, um, you can read about him as this incredible, incredible man. He is said to have read through the Scriptures 200 times. 200. I mean, we, we struggle to get through the Bible in one year with our plans because we kind of fade out in February because we're in Leviticus. It's like, oh man, this is dry. And so we, we it's struggling. I read it on the phone. It's easy. There you go. That's a, In fact, there's some great... There's a lot of different plans that are out there that are really helpful. Um, I saw one the other day. I thought, that's really an interesting way of approaching it. It was through the Bible in three years. And it was you kind of took thought sections. So you were working your way through the scriptures, but it didn't feel like I've got to get through 32 chapters today to make my deadline. Phineas J. Dake. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dake Study Bible. Phineas J. Dake is an unusual, eccentric Bible teacher. His Study Bible has a lot of... um, eccentricities, let's just put it that way. But it is an extraordinary resource. What most people don't know is he memorized the entire Bible. <gasps> a woman I used to work with years ago in the Christian bookstore was a great fan of Phineas J. Dake, and apparently when he was in town, she went to see him, and to see him, him preach and teach. And literally people would Kind of, it was like a parlor game. They would throw out a verse reference, and he would give it back to them from the crowd at random. He knew the entire Bible by memory in the King James English. Holy smoke! Yeah. You mean he knew all the chapters and verses, besides Everything. the actual words? Yes. Wonderful. That's genius. That's fervent. That's unusual to say the least. I'm not saying that... Photographic you, memory? Photographic memory, exactly. Exactly. Um, the great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce was known for his photographic memory. He was one of the great Greek New Testament um, Greek professors, teachers, writer, commentator and all that. And there's the story of a fellow who was giving his dissertation um, at whatever university he was teaching at at the time. So this fellow is giving the dissertation, he begins quoting very obscure early church father's text in Greek. And F.F. Bruce said, sir, you're quoting the wrong verse. It should be verse 7, not verse 5. And the guy, and of course, this guy giving his dissertation, and there's F. Bat Bruce, who had it memorized, and it wasn't even the New Testament. Anyway, there are people like that. I'm not one of them. Uh, anyway, so I had to stop here for a minute, and I've already stopped for a little while. But this idea of being a Berean to. Be someone who is diligent. I mean, I worked for the Berean Christian stores for 11 years. That was our name. I didn't really know what it meant when I went. I mean, I was a Bible student, but I thought that's kind of a weird name to give to a store. But then I realized the, the, you know, the point behind it. But what does it mean to be a Berean? I have a few verses. I've written them out. I will read them. You can write them down and look, for them, look at them for yourself. I start in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. <coughs> Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words are found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Psalm 119. And in case you don't remember, Psalm 119, the entire psalm is about the Word of God. And I'm going to quote Psalm 119, verse 160. So the longest psalm in the Bible has one topic. It's not, oh Lord, how long, or I'm suffering and my enemies hate me. It's how beautiful the Word of God is. Psalm 119, 160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So why study? Romans 16, verse 17. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. This is where you examine the Scripture. You hear a teaching. You hear a preacher. And you kind of go, I'm not sure that's biblical, what you're saying, sir. 2 John 1.9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whereas where whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And then in John 8, verses 31 to 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Word is the Word of Truth. You're not bound by the slavery of sin. You're not bound by what the world tells you is truth. You have the Word of God, and the Word of God is true, and thus, you have complete freedom in Christ. Nothing else. I mean, if you look at these guys, they receive the Word with eagerness, and they examine it every day. The Word of God is our sole basis for truth and error. We need to diligently search the Scriptures every day and be ready to receive God's truth when we are soaked in His Word. Now, there are a lot of great tools out there, and I'll just stop for a second. I am a collector of books and tools and study tools. If you were to come into my office, you would see about, oh, 8,000 books on 60-some-odd shelves and It's insane. Um, I have one bookcase, it's actually in my office office, right behind me where I work. I turn around and it's about this tall, this wide, and all that's on it are study Bibles. I just collect them. I love them. I think they're fascinating. To take a theme or an idea and look at all of Scripture along these lines. I mean, the C.S. Lewis Study Bible, the A.W. Tozer Study Bible, the Spurgeon Study Bible, where these guys have taken these great teachers and put their words alongside the text. And it's real fun to be using it as supplemental material. If you don't have a study Bible, I recommend you get one. I happen to have one with me, it's the ESV Study Bible probably the finest one that's on the market, period. It's 2,750 pages. And it's the weight of five bricks. You could, you could hold back an industrial door as a doorstop with this thing. Uh, I'll pass it around if you want to look at it, if you don't, aren't familiar with it. The reason why I recommend something like that is that it's a supplement to the reading. You can be reading along and go, I'm not sure I understand what that means. There's notes at the bottom of the page. There's maps in the text. There's all these other things that come along. And if you don't want something like that, get a one-volume Bible commentary or get a Bible handbook. When I was in high school, my dad and mom gave me Haley's Bible handbook as a gift for one of my... I think it was my 15th or 16th birthday. I devoured that thing. It was, it was eye-opening. For the first time, I was going, Oh! Oh! Now I understand, I've been in the church all my life and I was getting insight because it was done in such a way in the context of these, these scriptures that I was able to open it up. There's other little things, Crossway, the publishers of the ESV Study Bible has created a new little thing, these are little scripture journals. This is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, on one page is the text and on the other page it's blank and so you can actually be in fact one church i think it's your sister's church did with the book of john they actually had these at the back of the at the back of the church during their sermon series on john and they ran out and had to buy more because people were going oh my goodness and so while the preacher's teaching they're just sitting there making notations uh, if you wanted to buy 1 Samuel while Pastor Jim is teaching, uh, it's like $5, and you have the entire book of Samuel in a journal form. I'll pass it around just for fun and frivolity. There are so many tools out there. Another tool that, uh, the, that Crossway came up is the Reader's Edition of the, of the Bible. And what it is, it's the Bible without verse references but in paragraph form. So you're reading it like a book. And they typeset it in such a way that the ink on this page matches the ink on the back page. So you know when the onion skin paper, it bleeds through? Well, you can't tell because there's nothing to bleed through. You're just reading the text just like you're reading a book. Amazing tool. The whole reason I'm saying all this is that you you don't have an excuse. (laughs) <laughs> You've got it on your phone. You, you could be listening to it if you wanted to. The ESV is free audibly with Max McLean, the great reader, reading any text you want and just have it going while you're, while you're, while you're walking, while you're studying, while you're driving. You can do that. The idea is to get yourself into the Word. And I know I'm talking to a, uh, a choir. You all get this. But I think it's important to every once in a while be reminded why we do what we do and what we're doing and where it all comes from. This is what the Bereans were like. And then note, let's go back to our text. Verse 12, And many of them therefore believed. This is the Greek word pistuo, which comes from the Greek word pistis, which means faith. The Thessalonians did not have pistuo, they were persuaded. Now, you want to, you know, this is maybe a, a bit of um, comparing apples and oranges, um, or even apples and apples. But the Thessalonicans had to be persuaded. They had to be pretty much talked into it, and then, they, then they, you know, their eyes were open and they believed. But the word in the Thessalonican church is they were persuaded. But here, it's a very direct word that we see throughout all the rest of the New Testament of they believed, they had faith. And then it says, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But... Oh, I love verse 13. But, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the logos of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they showed up. The same rabble-rousers, the same wicked men of the mob. They came to agitating and stirring up the crowds. The word agitating is the same word used in Acts 16, 26, to be agitated by an earthquake, to be shaken. That's the same word. It was like they were just making the town upset. Anybody who wasn't part of the church, this fledgling church, were being agitated and stirred up. <coughs> So, we don't know exactly everything that would happen or how long it took for this to to come about, but in verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way by sea. So if you look at your map on page 2, he goes all the way down to Athens. Didn't go by road, he went by sea. And then you'll notice, okay, I'll just just read it. The brothers immediately sent Paul on his way by sea, Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul, it wasn't by himself. They didn't just give him a one way ticket to Athens. They went with him. Probably to make sure he went. I don't know. But they, he's all the way down to Athens. This is not next door, this is not your normal next stop on a walking journey. This is going all the way to the capital of the next province. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So what you have here (coughs) is Paul, his ministry in Berea is done. He's now in Athens. Now in the context, the historical context, You have the next thing in the scriptures in chapter 18, chapter 17 and 18, is Paul's Mars Hill uh, sermon. Very famous. After he was in Athens, he goes to Corinth. And he's in Corinth for almost two years. Somewhere in this time period, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church which is why I'm pausing here, rather than after the Athens journey, I'm pausing here to let's start looking at the book of Thessalonians, because we just left there. You know, I, I find it kind of fun to, uh, uh, to look at these things in their historical context. Every single sermon that I listened to, every single commentary that I was reading, Spend so much time in Acts 17 to set up 1 Thessalonians. Guess what? We've already done that. Oh, and by the way, I meant to do this one more little trick for you. Um, in Bible study, I need to back up, go back to my commercial side. When I'm preparing for this class, this is what I start with. Okay? I take the text out of the Bible gateway And I just have the text on one column, and the rest is blank. And that's what I start with. And I start reading, I start looking for connections and words or thoughts or whatever, and this is what I end up with. So this is what I've been teaching from. And on this particular case, I also did the whole back page. You can do this too. I'm not no magician up here. I'm just looking at the Word, reading the commentaries, looking at what's happening out there. And you start with something, you end up with something that's kind of fun. So, turn to page two in your handout, because now we are going to be looking at an overview of 1 Thessalonians. I don't often get to do this. Usually, when we start a study of a new book, we dive right into the text. I thought, in this case, let's, let's step back a little bit. Let's look at its time and place, that's what you see the little column there on the right hand page that's blank. The purpose and then the authorship uh, issues that have come up. The time and place. We talked a little bit about Thessalonica before. Um, this particular letter was written between 50 and 52 AD, we guess. You know, you know They weren't carrying around a day timer Um, and left us with it. Uh, The thought is it's approximately three months after he had been run out of town. We find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that while Paul was either in Corinth or Athens, we're not exactly sure, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Now, why would he do that? He... Loves the churches he planted. And he wants to make sure that everything is copacetic. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonians, and Timothy brings back this glowing report. Now, when you think about that, Paul was run out on the rails, the church was brand new. The city of Thessalonica, the gods of Greek and Roman paganism are everywhere. If you're going to plant a tree, you would pray to a relevant god. If you were going to a business trip, a quick trip to the appropriate shrine was in order. If your son or daughter were getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. At every turn in the road, the gods were there, unpredictable, possibly malevolent, and sometimes at war among themselves. You could never do much in the way of placating the gods and make sure they were on your side. So you had a people that were in constant fear of the gods. The Jews were there. There was a synagogue. It was a, 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 a quality group. But you had this idea that Paul had to persuade them that they were being, but they, they had a fledgling church. He goes to Berea and they were welcomed by the church. Isn't it interesting we never hear about Berea again? It's the only time in the entire Bible Berea is mentioned. And yet they're held up as, we need to all be Bereans. Why shouldn't we be Thessalonians? The Thessalonian church was viable and growing and beautiful. This is one of the great things about this particular letter. You realize they're only three months old. And they're exhibiting some of the most incredible uh, expressions of the Christian faith. The Bereans, most scholars figure that whatever letter he wrote to Berea was lost. We don't feel that he ignored them but we just don't even have them mentioned ever again. Thessalonians? Absolutely. In fact, there is, I think it's in Acts 20, there are two men from Thessalonica who joined Paul going all the way back to uh, Antioch. So this church was growing and vital and and important. Here's some things to remember about Thessalonica. Thessalonica. It's the capital of Macedonia, the Upper the northern part of Greece, if you look at your little map on that page, the southern half is called Achaia, or Achaea. That capital is Athens. So you ba- basically to compare the two would be, um, the capital of California is Sacramento, right? The capital of Arizona is? Greece. Greece. Yeah. So you have, they each have capitals. But they're, 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 they're the, the, the hub of everything. The city was originally called Therma because of its hot springs. And the hot springs are still there, actually. Um, it's still the second largest city in all of Greece. In history, I found this little trivia thing fascinating. It became the center for the Jews in Europe, in this part of Europe. It was called the Jerusalem of the Balkans, right before World War I. They figured there was up to 100,000 Jews in Thessalonica in 1913. But in 1917, there was the great fire of Thessalonica. And it burned out the center of the city and displaced 50,000 Jews who were living there. And the city fathers decided they weren't going to rebuild exactly as the way it was. They actually redesigned the entire city to follow the current European model. That's now what we see today if you go down in that area. But the Jews still stayed around until World War II. World War II, Italy invaded Greece and they could not subdue them, they couldn't beat them, 1940. But one of the things they did is they bombed Thessalonica blew up 800 buildings 1940 but they couldn't they couldn't break through they couldn't defeat them so Germany took over the battle and Germany walked right in and basically devastated the country of Greece in Thessalonica they rounded up 60,000 Jews and sent them all to Auschwitz all 2,000 survived the war today there are less than 1,000 Jews in the entire city of Thessalonica they're the ones that basically are left over that's a tragic story but he just gives you the idea of this region where it fit it was a port city in that northern part of the Aegean Sea You had Philippi was a port city, but Thessalonica was even more important. In fact, Xerxes, the Persian emperor, when his attempt to conquer Greece, set up Thessalonica as his naval base. It was the spot. So for it to be this central place for all of, uh, of the opening of Europe to the gospel... This is why, possibly one of the reasons why, Paul was very concerned about them. So, we look at the purpose. The purpose of this letter... Uh, I found so many variations, so I broke it into three basic ones. One is to encourage the church, which is what he does. It's very evident. He, he's, he's very effusive in his praise for what they're doing. In fact... In the book of 1 Thessalonians, he uses the word brothers 18 times as a ratio to the length of a letter and the number of the times the word brothers is used. It's far and away the most often of any of Paul's letters. He really considered them family. Second, he was explaining to them to instruct them, instruct them on holy living, some of the aspects of it. We kind of see that in the outline on the first page. You know, moral purity, disciplined living, uh, holy living in the day of the Lord, relationships within the church, and then thirdly, is to correct wrong understandings of prophetic events. Most people who go to study First Thessalonians focus purely on the statements about the rapture it's like it's it's considered a the prophetic book I'm going it's a lot more than that but that's one of its hallmarks it's one of the pieces that is interesting to people and they will focus there instead of looking at the whole of the letter And lastly, about the authorship. There is no question Paul is the author of this book. None at all. Only the most radical scholars challenge it. But if you go back in history, (coughs) you find that the authorship of Thessalonians as being Paul is mentioned in the Didache in 125 AD, by Ignatius in 180, by Tertullian in 200, by Origen in 230. It's listed in Marcion's Canon of the New Testament in 140 AD and is found in all the major editions of the New Testament. Anywhere, everywhere. And it's always complete and whole. The oldest manuscripts are... There's no change. There's no difference. Because there are some who say that 1 Thessalonians verse chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 16 are added in. That they were, uh, they were added later than the original letter. This is actually two letters stuck into one. And it's because he talks about the wrath of God suddenly in that verse. And they say, well, obviously that means he's talking about the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Obviously. Obviously. We can all tell that. No. There's, they're trying to find ways of breaking down the sanctity of Scripture. And they really struggle to find them here. I didn't want to write them all down, but there are eight different um, criticisms about Paul being the writer of 1 Thessalonians. But each one can be knocked down so easily with just a smidgen of logic that there's really no question. Some would say because in verse 1 of chapter 1, he mentions Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, meaning Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that the book was co-authored by all three of them. Well, okay, except it's more like they were co-senders. These were the teachers. These were the guys who set the church up in the first place. And saying, hey guys, it's us. We're writing to you and he uses we all through 1st Thessalonians, meaning, oh, it had to be co-authored by all three of them, except for the fact that I is used multiple times as well. So you just, these efforts, especially with 1st Thessalonians are almost laughable. There are other books where you kind of have to really hear the criticisms and go, okay, but not this one, Um, not at all. Turn to the last page in your handout, which I gave you. Something i would never seen before. And I found it so fascinating that I reformatted it in this form for you to to look at. Merrill Tenney, the great, great Bible teacher and commentator, points out that every major doctrine of the Christian faith is found in the two letters of Thessalonians. I never had heard that in my life. It's beautiful when you look at this. It's as if he wrote, if, if you, which I'm going to have us all do, we're going to read this aloud together, without the reverse references, please. Um, but it's like a creed. And what we're reading here is what Paul is providing to the Thessalonian church. But when you step away from it and look back at it, it's everything you need to know about living the Christian life. If Paul never wrote another letter, ever, this would be enough. So let's read it together. We'll start with the word believed. Believed in one living God, the Father, who has loved men and has chosen them to enjoy His salvation. He has sent deliverance from wrath through Jesus Christ, His Son, and has revealed this deliverance through the message of the Gospel. This message has been confirmed and has been made real by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, who was killed by the Jews. He rose from the dead. He is now in heaven, but he will come again. To him is ascribed deity, for he is called Lord, God's Son, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers receiving the word of God turn from idols, serve God, and wait for the return of Christ. Their normal growth is sanctification. In personal life, they are to be clean, industrious, prayerful, prayerful cheerful. cheerful you don't have to read the rest <laughs> isn't that amazing this is all what we are going to find when we open up 1st and 2nd Thessalonians the entire panoply of the doctrine of the church the doctrine of Jesus Christ the power of the holy spirit to for us to live our lives as Christians as little Christs to imitate him. And as I've already done some preliminary um, reading and some preliminary uh, study, we find themes in here that you find expanded in his other letters, like 1 Corinthians and Romans where you suddenly have this extraordinarily long piece. But he started here to help out a fledgling church, to give them encouragement and sustenance for the next persecution that was coming their way. So we've reached our end of our time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, to be able to open up the Word as the Bereans did, to look at everything we study here sift it, judge it against the Scriptures and find out, are we following Your Word the way it was intended? And then to open up a book of the New Testament that is rarely studied these days. This is going to be exciting and we look forward to the blessings that You will give to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.